Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Emrus. Today, men and women in Iran are united in wanting to destroy the Islamic Republic forever. When women are liberated, then the whole society will be liberated. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon. And reminding you all to don't believe the hype unless it's about this show. I'm Nick Sperry. Come on. Come on. The people. You saw that was coming. You I saw knew, that was coming. I know it was coming. I mean, I could have made reference to Rebel Without Pause. I'm just not going to do that here. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this show over my shoulder, the vinyl today is uh, it takes millions to hold us back from public enemy. Uh, legendary vinyl legendary album period uh so just making <laughs> making a reference to chuck d and flavor flakes great work folks uh, i apologize for my co-host today uh leon media network uh, not that i i endorse <laughs> chuck d and flavor Flav, but the history lesson from uh professor of rap nick Saveri here um we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to shorten these intros for you <laughs> on the program today uh the january 6th committee nick is getting set for their final hearing before the midterms, before potentially they may get absolved, uh, Nick and I with the latest from what could come from that hearing and some recent news from the committee. Uh, plus, later on in the program, Iranian journalist and author Kamen Mohammadi, she's going to join us to talk about everything that's happening in Iran, the recent worldwide protests that have been happening across almost every major city. If you don't know what they're about, if you don't know what is happening in Iran in this moment and the attack against the women of Iran she is going to fill us in on all of that in the next segment. And finally, the worst boss possible, Nick, wants you to work during a hurricane. 
more details on that later on in the program. As a boss of Leon Media Network, transition segue here. Uh, I would never make you work in a hurricane, Nick, just an FYI on that front. Um, uh, housekeeping notes, leonmedianetwork.com. You can check out the new site, see some new shows that we have coming out. Uh, very soon, we're going to be making a major announcement of a show that will be on Lydia, Leon Media Network banner. Um, and you can find out about our live show in D.C. happening Thursday, October 27th. A bunch of cool guests coming on the program to celebrate the two-year anniversary of this program. Nick and I are excited about that. Uh, Nick, my friend, what, what else is going on your way, man? Raiders have finally won a game. Uh, that's not important with everything else happening in the world. <laughs> I was thinking about this when I was going to talk to you today um, for recording this episode. Like, Hurricane uh, Ian hits here. What's happening in Iran? We've the new cycle has washed away what happened in Pakistan with, you know, with the floodings there um, and the new cycle has washed away what happened. I don't know if you heard about what happened in Indonesia with 129 people killed at this soccer match. I was reading about this, like like the two teams playing against each other, the police firing up, upon people. There's so much happening in the world, man. It makes no difference if the Raiders won or lost. I know old Mike Leon wouldn't be saying that, but now. Inform Mike Leon is like, oh, my God, I'm reading some of these news stories and I'm like, just keeps getting worse and worse out there, man. How, how are you doing, buddy? Good. You know, and it's I mean, there's a certain level of like survivors are more saying that because as you just talked about, there's so many things happening in the world, you know, just a soccer match, you know, people just, you know, seeing a, a yeah. football game and, um, you know, a loss of life there. And you know, I'm glad you brought back up Pakistan, you know, like so many other places that we're seeing just, you know, changes in water levels and everything that's going on with the planet. You know, these things have to maintain momentum. Um, you know, obviously we're going to be getting into, you know, what's going on in Iran today, but, you know, so I say good relatively, you know, my family's healthy, you know, we're safe, obviously. Um, but it's, it's hard to, to not think about those things. I'm grateful for the show for many reasons, but you know, one of which is just being even more informed. You know, yeah. I find myself on Twitter a lot lately. Um, you and I joked about this, <laughs> you know, sharing just something simple about what's going on in Russia and like, you know, so many people like liking it. It's like, well, wait a minute, folks, let me verify where this I'm telling you this from. But, you know, we're able to now on this platform and in our, our various outlets, you know, continue to talk to the right people, be really informed. I mean, I average right now, I've lost count how many news stories a day I read for this show, for our respective conversations. And sometimes it's a little funny. You talk to other people and you forget the fact that, well, they're not doing a, a you know, multiple podcasts a week that are focused on news and current events. So people are just kind of not there. So, you know, when we talk about the Raiders, you know, for some, that is a big deal, you know, for but for you and I, it's it's relative to what goes on in our personal lives, but also recognizing that we do a, a show well, we're going to dive into serious stuff and we do it all the time, but we do in a way that's obviously hopefully entertaining and informative. So, but all is good. And as always, you know, we're only a few weeks away, folks, to getting down to DC in a few weeks. You know, Mike and I text obviously all the time. And as time has moved on, we are now in October and it's just upon us. A few weeks from now, we're going to be down there. Mike, this might be our busiest month so far in the two years that we've we've recorded i mean clearly so, it has to be because we're we, doing multiple episodes now I, I mean we have so many guests that are coming on the program professors best-selling authors uh we have a, a human rights lawyer that's coming on to talk about the issues that are happening in iran in the ukraine as well 
um, and obviously came in, will be on in the next segment. Um, Jeff Perlman will be on later this month to promote his his new book on on the fictional character that actually lived out in everyone's lives in, in the name of Bo Jackson. But more on that later on this month. That's going to be awesome. You know, I want to get real quick before we get into our first segment here on the January 6th committee. Um, first off, to donate to the hurricane relief there for the folks in Florida. Obviously, you know, I live down here in the state. I'm a few hours south of where all the damage happened. My, my mother lives in Orlando, a lot of flooding uh, in the area where she lives. And obviously the people of Sanibel Island, Fort Myers is more west of Florida. If you want to donate, head to our show, lo- our show notes right now. And there's a link there to donate to the Red Cross and the relief efforts that are underway there in Florida. There's still relief efforts happening in Puerto Rico. Obviously we know what happened uh, last month with that storm. Um, so do do all that, what you can donate there to those relief efforts. Um, the stuff in Iran, you know, th- the reason I, well, we were going to cover this anyway, and you and I had, had reached out to somebody else, but I've had a few people actually, uh, of, uh, an immigration attorney, that's a friend of mine. And then another friend of mine whose nephew right now has been arrested by the government in these protests. Um, and then she was like, you, you have to do something. You have to do something about this. And you know how you and I do here, right? Informed, educated place, bringing on, it's not so much different perspectives. It's more about fact fiction. I want to get to the root cause of this. I want to understand it. I am not, you know, Persian. I'm, I, I've, I've never been there. I've never been to that region of the country, of, of the world, excuse me. And, I, you know, so I don't, I don't want to pretend like I know what's going on there. And just like a lot of people that have saw massive protests that have happened in Toronto, you know, in LA, in New York over this weekend, in London, um, in terms of the death of what happened to this young lady, like I, I, we want to talk about that. We want to understand what is happening and what also can the West and the U.S. do specifically? Because everybody, unfortunately, always turns, fortunately or unfortunately, depending upon how you're looking at it, always turns to the U.S., right? The super cop. Help us, U.S. Don't help us, U.S. Um, so and we live here. Right. So we need to figure out. What's happening with that? So, uh, so came in on the other side uh, in the second segment. First, let's get into our first segment, Nick. Uh, January 6th committee, I mentioned it. They're getting ready. They were supposed to have uh, a hearing last week that got postponed. Uh, uh, committee chair Benny Thompson said the new one uh, is still TBD right now, but this will be their last final hearing uh, unless something else develops. This hearing is the last one, according to Chairman Benny Thompson. Um, the one big thing that has developed so far over the summer was Ginny Thomas, right? The wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, potentially speaking to the committee. And then she eventually spoke to them recently. And there were some interesting sound bites that uh, Chairman Thompson gave to the media about what Ginny Thomas was saying with respect to her beliefs on what happened uh, for the election cycle of 2020. Take a listen to this. Can you can you characterize what she is not answering, what she's refusing to answer? Yeah. So you're saying she still believes the 2020 election was stolen? So if you couldn't hear that there, again, uh, Chairman Thompson was outside of one of the chambers, so that's why you hear a lot of background noise. He's being asked there uh, what Jenny Thomas said to the committee, that she still believes the 2020 election was stolen. Um, these are her beliefs, according to Chairman Thompson. Other committee members also mentioned that uh, I struggle with, you know, somebody that is the wife of a Supreme Court justice who, by the way, she has said, I can't believe I'm saying this in her defense, um, that, that she doesn't talk to her husband 
about issues that uh, are outside of like, you know, the guidelines of their relationship. Well, we're going to get to that in a second that she says she doesn't talk to her husband about certain things. We'll find out about that. Something I thought that was interesting in all of this was that Ginny Thomas was a former cult member turned anti-cult activist. Um, she was a member of the human potential movement, which I don't know what that means because I think all humans have potential. Nick's going to explain that in a second. But um, so Ginny Thomas, um, the committee met with her. There's nothing that really they feel is anything illegal that she did with respect to the text message exchanges that she had. She didn't put anything into motion to try to like overturn the election. She just voiced her concerns, according to them, about the election potentially being stolen. So the committee is getting ready to wrap uh, that up uh, probably next week or the week after they're still obliged to deliver a written report on the findings of a nearly 15 month investigation into all of the why, who, what, when of January 6th of 2021. And how do we prevent another one? The House of Representatives obviously uh, passing something recently to help with uh, elections going forward. Nick, some of your takeaways there on the soundbite that we played, because we're going to get into another one, too, of former President Donald Trump thanking Jeannie Thomas for her service. Uh, a, a weird thank there at a recent rally. I'll, I'll play that clip in a second. But um, the January 6th committee getting ready to wrap up here. We've talked about this committee ad nauseum. A few different people have been on the program. Um, your takeaways on the committee and their findings about to get released, this, this report, the, the last uh, hearing, because these primetime hearings have been pretty good in terms of some of the new information that's been released. And then your takeaways on, on Jenny Thomas not talking to her husband about <laughs> certain things that played out at the workplace. Yeah, it's it's weird because the interesting thing is going to be here, this question of like where the crime is. You know, we know, you know, there's emails that have been confirmed. You know, that she'd been in contact with Mark Meadows. You know, she'd been talking to so many people about trying to stop the steal. Like that's what we've been seeing. Now, is all of that a crime? I, I really don't know. But what would be interesting in the in this hearing, like the others for January 6th, is you know, where's the presence of a crime? You know, what has happened here that could potentially get her in some legal trouble? Um, I've said from the beginning, you know, with these emails and things, this felt like a reason to confiscate and you know start accessing information. Jenny Thomas wasn't married to Supreme Court justice. Are we going to be at taking as kid gloves an approach to her as we would uh, with any ordinary citizen who was in a position of influence? I, I don't know. So I'm like most Americans. I'm just curious. I'm struggling with you know where where the criminal activity is, aside from the fact that she has a position of influence. Um, but this certainly is is certainly distasteful that. She's espousing these strange beliefs, uh, which were obviously proven false. And I'm not surprised at the former president who, you know, it's so funny. Maybe he's running. Maybe he's not running. We don't really know. But he keeps doing these rallies and people really foolish, foolishly keep giving him money, although that campaign right now is currently in some legal trouble. And it's just it's just this constant rhetoric. And, you know, it's just the former president obfuscating <laughs> to try to, you know, keep 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 people, you know, confused and keep people not focusing on the criminal stuff he's responsible for. So yeah. yeah, I'm curious like the rest of America, what to make of all this with with um with uh Ms. Thomas. Well let's get into the the former president. But first uh the committee revealed a new area of inquiry. They asked former House Speaker Newt Gingrich to testify voluntarily about his role in spreading misinformation about the election 
in the days leading up to December 14th, obviously uh, that's when the electoral college um, uh, meets and um, evidence shows that Mr. Gingrich pushed messages designed to incite anger amongst voters, even after Georgia election officials have faced intimidation and threats of violence. Still don't know what's happening with the secret service records, those deleted records. uh, And if they've been preserved, we'll see about that. But something that I saw interesting the other day, uh, speaking of the former president, like I mentioned, you know, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times has a new book coming out. We can get into, of course, her saving all of this information for a book. And instead of actually disclosing some of this information with, you know, her employers or reporting on it, uh, which would have been even better, nonetheless, in this uh, set of interviews that she did with the former president, listen to what the former president said when he learned about what was happening over on January 6th at the Capitol. How did you find out that, that there were people storming the, the Capitol? I had heard that afterwards, and actually, on the late side, I was, I was having meetings. Mm-hmm. I was also with uh, Mark Meadows and others. Mm-hmm. I was not watching television. I didn't have the television you on. You weren't, okay. Uh, I didn't usually have that te- the television on. I'd have it on if there was something. I then later turned it on, and I saw what was happening. I also had... Uh, confidence that the Capitol, who didn't want these 10,000 people, the Capitol Police, you mean, that okay. they'd be able to control this thing. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that, you know, they they did lose control. Yeah, I mean, they lost control. I mean, you, you sent them there. But <laughs> anyway, hold on, before I let you go, hold on, hold on. Um, yeah, pretty crazy that he said that. But um so that that came out recently. That's been making the news uh, rounds. Um, there's new Steve Bannon audio that demonstrates uh, that Donald Trump plan was to falsely claim victory in 2020. And it was premeditated um, weeks before. So I don't know where the January 6th committee goes uh, from here in terms of that next hearing. Again, it will be their final hearing. Then the report. Uh, what do you make there of the former president's comments to Maggie Haberman on the record being recorded all for a book says, oh, man, I can't believe Capitol Police lost control there, Nick, of all the people that I I sent there. Yeah. Um, you know, seriously, it's offensive. Um, you know, we've had multiple officers who served that day who committed suicide. Um, just from the mental anguish that they experienced. And and I would make the argument part of it also comes from the fact that um, what should have been justice meted out that day wasn't. Um, and they didn't receive the support that they needed. You know, a former president at the time, you know, was still acting president, could have come forward, you know, and first up, not told people to do this, um, but people having moved forward and, you know, causing this, situation at the Capitol and essentially an attempt at invading a federal building and attempt to th- overthrow the government could have come forward and asked these people to stop or demanded that they stop because these folks are empty headed morons. They believe anything that this former president has to say. He didn't do it. Like in many cases, he wasn't a leader. And for him to come forward and now to casually say, well, you know, I, they were overwhelmed, like go to hell, honestly. Um, yeah, I, it angers me, honestly. You know, it's we've seen enough video between documentaries and the things that we, you and I've talked about on this show, you know, interview um, interviewing people about about their own work, you know, in, in documenting January 6th. So to have him very cavalierly uh, describe Capitol Police as being overwhelmed when 
he himself could have done something about it is shameful. Um, yeah. And as far as Maggie Haberman goes, you know, I mean, it's not just her, you know, Bob Woodward did something similar to this where you have a lot of reporting that just seems to get withheld, you know, and then a book comes out and then all these revelatory things happen. And I don't know. Well, I was going to say, I don't know what to make of it. That's not true. I, I know what to make of it is there's a conflict of interest here. If you're a journalist, shouldn't your responsibility, isn't your job to report in real time what's happened? You know, if you're Maggie Haberman with this incredible level of access to the former president, these things that you have seen and witnessed and have heard directly from him to not serve, to not provide that, to not report that in real time through your respective outlet, which is the New York Times, one of the largest, most notable newspapers on the planet, to sit on all that and have it come out in the form of a book deal just to basically get paid and and build up your your media volume or whatever is just disgusting. And it makes yeah. you question everything that you report at that point, because it's a question of, well, is this worthy of reporting or is this not really the significant stuff? Because I got to wait till next year when your publisher puts it puts it out, you know, and it's yeah. Uh, no, it's just distasteful, honestly. I'm, I'm glad you said that. In our live show in DC, we have a panel of journalists that we're going to pose some questions like that too. Because I'll be honest, um, when Bob Woodward, you know, had all of that COVID stuff, and from the former president saying that, "Hey, this is real serious. We got to, you know, we got to take this serious, Bob." And I looked at Bob Woodward way different. Like you, legitimately saved this, sat on this for ten months. This was, you know, a sitting president of the United States that has the power to do these things. And you're sitting there on all this information just because you have a book coming out in 10 months. Yeah, guys, I know you had one more thing on that front. Yeah, I, I think it was also weird that so many people came to, to Maggie's aid on Twitter. You know, I saw a lot of tweets about people who were trying to basically demonize folks like you and I, you know, for being rightfully critical of a journalist who's sitting on information in, in order to release a book. And it's said, well, you understand that you're, you could never be the level of journalist she is. Shut up. Shut the hell up, all yeah. of you. She yeah. deserves all of this. And it's not just because of the book deal. Maggie Haberman has had unfettered access to the former president for a long time. And in all of that, what we have found is what I would not necessarily call sugarcoated, but very bland level of honesty when it comes to really what was happening with that president. And she did it for the same reason that we've seen other reporters and other insiders and other media outlets who are very careful with their subject matter because they don't want to disrupt the access. But we all knew everything like you and I have lived on the East Coast for years. We all knew what kind of con man the former president was. I didn't need a journalist, but the rest of the country certainly did. And she sat on that information eventually for a book deal, but essentially because she wanted to continue to cozy up to a person who was a person of influence in the former president. It just calls into question all of it. And anyone dumb enough on social media to come running to her aid for whatever reason, get your head examined. She deserves all all of the smoke that she's getting. Well, I, I let me take a, a different approach because I agree and disagree in, in this regard. Um, the first thing they teach you in journalism school is you can't sit on information, especially if you already have it confirmed from multiple sources. She has it confirmed from the president of the United States. There's no higher source. There's nothing else that you need to run by anybody else to get your second source on the record to confirm this. She sat on that. You want her to be critical 
plus leaking the information or putting it out there with respect to articles or her her contribution that she does to CNN Network. I, I, I can't do that because she's a journalist. She is supposed to just give the information and just let people decide. I don't need her to be critical because that's not her job. That's not in the job description of any journalist. They shouldn't be critical. Okay. That's up to us to be critical given the information. However, we got to get the information. She sat on it, just like Bob Woodward sat on it, and they sat on it for financial gain. That's where I take umbrage with it because that's a no-no in the profession. Like it's it's rule one. Go back to the School of Information and Library Studies at Rutgers University where you and I went. That would be the first thing. The first thing a professor said to me was, you're a journalism major? Nice. You want to make money? Cool. What are you doing here? Because they, everyone knows that they do the grunt work like this, you know, getting sources and methods and stuff like that, and then reporting on things. Like you said, she didn't want to disrupt the access. I can't kill her for on the critical part, but she has to release that information. Anyway, we leave it there because the January 6th stuff and how that plays out over the next couple of weeks, we'll have some uh, coverage and attention to it, especially when the committee wraps up and what happens with that findings report and everything else that's going on with the committee. Like I mentioned, a bunch of different uh, loopholes that are still open right now from the committee's vantage point, secret service, text messages, exchanges, and things like that. But uh, when we come back after the break, Kamen Mohammadi, she's a fantastic Iranian British journalist, author. Uh, she's going to educate us on everything that's playing out uh, in Iran right now. The- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Protests that have been happening common after the break. Nick, as always, the presenting sponsor of Can We Please Talk is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, this Pennsylvania-based company has been giving out the good stuff in terms of coffee, roasted coffee, coffee pots, teapots, tea bags, merchandise, and more. FreshRoastedCoffee.com or click the link in our show notes for a discount. But first, hear from the man who knows coffee better than anybody on this two-man panel, Nick Saberi. Fresh Roasted Coffee. Give the people a reason to go to that URL, to go to that website. Go now, folks. <laughs> you got you got flavored coffee. You've got single origin coffee. You know, FreshRoastedCoffee.com provides both opportunities. And depending on whichever way you are with your morning Java, they've got your options. As Mike mentioned, tea. If you're a tea drinker, 
Folks, if you are a caffeine consumer, Fresh Roasted Coffee is the place for you. They also give you an opportunity to learn about their products. When you get there, take the quick quiz, only a couple of questions, you'll find out what coffee makes sense for you, and then it's very easy to buy it. In addition, if you brew your coffee a couple different ways, Mike's Cura guy, I'm a French press person. You know, If you're a Chemex person, like I've been as well, there's so many different ways you can learn how to make really good coffee. So if you save yourself a trip at the coffee shop, this place has got it for you. Freshroastedcoffee.com is definitely the place to go to fill all your coffee needs. That's right. And, and if you click on our show notes right now, you'll see a link to freshroastedcoffee.com. You got to click on that link and you're going to get a special discount promo code applied at checkout. Head to that link in our show notes right now and get in on some of this delicious tasting coffee today. All right. We were talking with her off air. She's going to educate us about everything that's happening with the situation playing out in Iran, that is common, Mohammadi. Uh, she is an Iranian British journalist and author. Common Mike Leon Nixavari, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us today. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's really, um, it's really a privilege. It genuinely is a privilege, you know, that, to be able to have this platform. Well, I, I appreciate that. Again, another soundbite that will live in the annals of history of this show. Um, <laughs> Common, I, I want to get to the, the seriousness that's unfolding. We reached out to you because of, you know, the, the protests that are happening, not only globally in major cities that, that maybe haven't gotten the attention that they deserve in, in Toronto, in New York, in L.A., for the women of Iran and what is happening there. For, for our U.S. audience that maybe is steeped into what's happening on the U.S. news and politics space, can you give a 30,000-foot overview of what happened in Iran with the death of Masa Amini and the subsequent protests that have happened in Iran? Yes. Um, on the 16th of September, a Kurdish-Iranian girl called Masa Amini, she was in Tehran visiting family. Um, as you may or may not know, Iran is very ethnically diverse within its own borders. That's why she was Kurdish-Iranian, like me. Funnily enough, she comes from my, my paternal homeland. And um, she was taken by the morality police, which is something that we have in Iran, for bad hijab. Now, um, your listeners might know that in Iran, it's mandatory for women to be covered up, not our faces, but to have hair and body covered at all times. And mostly that has over the years been interpreted quite loosely sometimes, and they've been quite elaborate hairstyles. Now, every once in a while, they crack down on what they call bad hijab. And um, since April of last year, I believe, we've had a new president who's a hardliner called Ebrahim Rais. And he... Um, at the beginning, I think, of this summer, he cracked down on uh, the the hijab laws. And that means that roaming the streets are people, troops of these morality police who are authorized to go up to, um, well, women and, uh, you know, slap them in the face if they feel like it genuinely and, and, and take them and say, you know, you have bad hair job. Now, talking of bad hair job, um, Mahsa's hair job was relatively modest. She just had a few strands of hair poking out. She was nothing like some of the elaborate sort of fashionistas that you see in Tehran sometimes, you know. So just to say that she wasn't particularly, uh, you know, she wasn't extreme either. They took her, there's some footage I've seen of them talking to her and her crying, you know. I've had some tapes of her saying, um, pleading with them, saying, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm not from Tehran, I'm from a small town, I, I don't know what I've done wrong. Um, they take her for what's called re-education, 
Um, so they take her into custody and then the two, her brother followed. So we know this in the two hours that she was in custody. Um, they presumably beat her so badly that she ended up in a coma. So she ends up in hospital in a coma. Um, and we have this extraordinary picture of her in ICU all sort of tubed up. And they say that she died of a stroke and a heart attack. Her family say she had absolutely no problems medically. She was 22 and perfectly healthy. And um, that there was lots of signs of bruising around her head and neck, presumably so. Uh, so they gave her, I have to say allegedly, I suppose, a bad beating. She died. Um, she died and the protests went off and they started in Sakhez in Kurdistan, which is where she's from. Um, the protests went crazy in, in, in Kurdistan. They then were very brutally repressed in Kurdistan just in a matter of two days, I believe. Something like four or five people reported killed by the security forces, 250 people arrested. Um, however, people didn't stop. In fact, the protests spread. We're on day 19 now. The crackdown has been increasingly brutal, but the protests are still not stopping. So we've seen it not just in Tehran, the capital, but we've seen these protests going on in everywhere, all over Iran, in in small towns, in provinces that are normally really quite far and quite sort of very poor and very ignored by Tehran. You know, we had this um, a terrible massacre this weekend in in Baluchistan, in Iranian Baluchistan, which is right on the border with Pakistan, where we have our ethnic Baluchis, who, you know, where Shalwar Kim is it, um, and Zahedan, the, the capital of that province. Again, very, very poor. Um, th there was It was genuinely a massacre, I think. They killed more people in, in that one or two days there than they had in the whole two weeks. However, I, I'll just give you some context. I wrote a piece on Friday where I said, um, as far as we know, there's 17 journalists in jail. And there's something like 70 to 180 people who've been killed. And I updated that piece yesterday and it went 35 journalists that are in jail, reportedly a, a conservative estimate of a thousand people who've been killed and 10,000 people who are now in jail. And that was before they attacked the other day Sharif University. So, um, let me know if I'm, you know, but if it's not clear. So these protests have been going on. We've had images which are utterly shocking. I mean, they're shocking. You think you're watching, you know, a, a cop show um, where these figures, you know, that, that are dressed kind of like Robocop. I mean, they're so armed up to the teeth. They are literally just on the streets, just shooting live bullets into the protests. The protesters, um, what we saw immediately afterwards, what started and what sometimes some people have, have maybe misconstrued as being a, a, a revolt against Islam, and it's not at all, but women started taking off their hijab, taking off their headscarves and walking around without them, holding them up, burning them, dancing around fires. Now, you have to know that under the Sharia law of Iran, it is forbidden for women to show their hair in public, to wear tight fitting clothes to sing or dance in public. So when when we see images of women dancing around dancing around fires and throwing their headscarves in the fire, it really is unimaginable to us. And it does feel like the furies have been unleashed in Iran because these women, these these young women, they're overwhelmingly Gen, Gen Z, Gen Z, um, 
are just not taking any more. And what's been extraordinary about the protests is they've gone on and on. They're not just women. They're not just the young people. Men have been out there alongside women since 2009 at all the protests. Sometimes they put their hijab on themselves. Um, and one of them, the, there are so many extremely amazing chants that are going around in these protests that we haven't heard before. And one of them is, don't be afraid, we are together. Don't be afraid, we are together. And there is this sense of unity that is extraordinary now. The regime has been shutting down and slowing down the internet in, for the duration. Um, yet there are VPNs being used. There's all sorts of sort of help coming, proxy servers. And there are still some videos coming out. Um, so we're seeing really, really upsetting scenes of people being killed, shot, people being rounded up, but we're getting some information and we're able to share this information with the world. And, you know, many people say to me, um, I feel helpless, but people do watch the hashtags. And I've heard messages from inside Iran where people say, you know, for all of these years, we felt very alone in our struggle. Um, but to know that the world sees us and is behind us really makes us feel not alone. So I think it is really important. So these protests have gone on. They then start to call out national strikes. Um, the universities go back in the meantime, and they start um, on the 1st of October, um, I think day two, um, all the universities call a nationwide strike. They go on strike and on October the 2nd, on Sunday, security forces arrive en masse at Sharif University. Now, Sharif University is our most elite university for, you know, the best minds. So it's a kind of combination of Harvard, um, MIT, Oxford, you know, all rolled into one. So imagine that troops show up at your most elite university and they literally, I mean, the videos are horrific. They literally are, are, are running down these students like they're cattle. They're like rounding them up and they trap them in an underground car park. They um, they shot many, they shot many lecturers, faculty members who inserted their bodies between the students and the security forces thinking that would have an effect and they got shot. Um, they The jails are full, I hear. Um, they've taken many, many people now that was extremely horrific in this scenario of extremely horrific things. But the following day, high schools went back. And the you may have seen some of the videos of schoolgirls who have come out on strike, school kids, come out on strike in support of Sharif, and not just Sharif, but other universities also have come out. You know, I've seen footage from provincial universities in places like Esfahan um, and people out there. And, you know, when you see these these mass, mass bodies of, of young girls, all with their hair out, you know, chasing away sort of um, agents of the regime from inside their schools, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's extraordinary. So, yeah, I... That, <laughs> That's oh, a kind it, of nutshell. <laughs> it's a great summary. This it's, this is why podcasts are good uh, a lot of the times. Um, let, let me ask you a follow-up here before Nick jumps in, because uh, I, I obviously I'm Cuban-American. You, We were talking off air about Nick being uh, Indian. Uh, so when I was talking to somebody, an immigration attorney who is Iranian, and I was asking them the similarities between how would I get family to leave Cuba versus how you would get family to leave Iran right now, uh, she mentioned it's very, very difficult um, for 
our audience again uh, uh, learning about this like how is it that people can leave iran because you were exiled in, in before the revolution your your father was i've i've read something recently about your father was under death threats and your family fled iran before the revolution happened but now for people that are there it is harder to leave can you kind of explain that process of how people can't just necessarily leave iran but just because of their neighboring <laughs> countries and and everything around it can you explain that to our audience Absolutely. So there was a revolution in 1979. Um, we were actually there for the revolution and we left soon afterwards. Um, and uh, yes, my father and many people who weren't really involved in any way were just under threat because I think this kind of thing happens in revolutions. Um, the, the, at that point, the, the, um, this Islamic regime came into power. Um, our revolution is often called an Islamic revolution, but it wasn't really. It started off very much as a socialist, as a Marxist, as a kind of um, uprising of workers and and um, uh, poorer people who wanted some kind of equality, who weren't happy about the rapid westernization um, and elitism under the Shah. Um, they all united under the figurehead, they thought of this quite hard. <laughs> A harmless mullah called Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini, who then came back to Iran and took power and instituted what he called God's own government. So here we have God's own government, who now for the past 43 years um, has has seen it fit to, I mean, even within the first few years of the revolution happening in the early 80s, this regime had killed more people than the Shah had in the whole of his um, 30-something years on the throne. Um, and now I just, I don't know who can keep count of all the atrocities that they have visited on on our people. Um, the, the reality is that Iran became a closed country. Now, the Iranian people have had it particularly hard because they've been vilified by the West and they have also um, suffered at the hands of their own regime. So that's been one of the really painful things is that because of um, the, is, the, the Islamic regime and, and Khomeini's government turning their back on the West um, because they talked about West toxification and wanting to take Iran back to a really sovereign sort of culture. Um, Iran has been a sort of pariah. In fact, the US has had sanctions on Iran since 1979. I mean, we hear about sanctions now, but they've been going on for a really long time. So Iran became a pariah and that meant that, you know, our own, Iranian passports became sort of worthless in the sense that we couldn't travel. So traveling out of the country is very, very complicated. Very few places give you a visa. Um, very few people can afford to even go through the process of applying to leave. Um, if, for example, when my father passed away in London some years ago, um, the remainder of his family, i.e. my cousins, because his brother and sister were already dead, um, who were the closest relatives that we had, that he had, um, we sent them, um, you have to send a um, an invitation through the embassy to the people that you want to bring, even though they're your family and our people, because it happened very fast. Um, there wasn't enough time to do this process, which takes a long time. And they were not considered uh, first degree relations. And so they were not considered to be a valid case for being allowed out of the country. So the Iranian regime um, controls very, very tightly its own citizens' access to the outside world. And the outside world 
makes it pretty difficult for Iranians to come. I mean, first of all, um, you know, the economy has been shot in Iran for a really long time. So for many people, cost-wise, it's prohibitive. But even to go through the process of getting a visa, trying to apply, trying to get somebody to invite you, going through the interview processes, it's really hard. So getting up and leaving isn't really an option for most people. Um, and I understand that in, in this part of, in our part of the world, we're so lucky that we have this um, complete right to kind of roam about the place, you know, without thinking twice about it. I, I guess COVID gave us all a little bit of a, an insight into what it's like when everything is um, difficult and bureaucratic and you have to have lots of papers and, and tick different boxes. So, yeah, that's the reason why the majority of people don't leave. Having said that, Iran does have the greatest brain drain in the world. So um, our brightest students do manage to leave because especially American universities are clever enough to take them. Um, it's been a very difficult scene in the last few years with the Muslim ban, as it was called, which um, actually came in under Obama, but was given a lot more air and energy under Trump, um, whereby... Wow. Um, not only could Iranians, but people from Iran, but even people like some of you people that I know who were born in Iran, but who've never been back for 40 years. Still, if you were born in Iran, even if you no longer hold the passport, not allowed in without a visa. It was also not guaranteed that you would get a visa if you applied. Um, and, it, and it made access for, for kids who are studying in America. It made it very, very hard for them to leave and go back home and come back. And it made it also very hard to have anybody visiting them. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the complications around leaving. So, of course, there is illegal immigration um, and people who can leave, you know, with people smugglers do. But that also will generally cost a whole family's life savings, you know. And, and people did and still do regularly die on these journeys because they're rough, you know. Common, you know, when we think about a regime um, that's harming or slaughtering its own people, sadly, you know, that in and of itself is not surprising. Um, but from where you stand, you know, and let's also shout you out for a moment. Um, 2001, the Cypress Tree that you'd written about your journey back to Iran, you know, going back 20 years well, I'll also share, you mentioned about the videos of the young women. Uh, I saw something this morning of girls basically pushing their principal out the school, um, you know, with, again, you know, no coverings to their hair, hair flowing freely. I think there's the visual of that. Um, 20 years ago, when you returned to Iran, how conceivable would a protest of this sort have been? Because I'm really wondering also, you know, this particular woman's murder by the by the morality police seems to have sparked a national now global outrage why this particular incident that's really seemed to lit the fuse that's a really that's a really good question why now you know i in writing my book i looked i asked that question about the revolution of 79 and i think that um i think that you know things build up so it's not just about Mahsar and this moment. It's about everything that has happened since 1979. And you're absolutely right. When I first went, we left in 79, and I think I first went back in 96 or something like that. And and even up until the last time I was in Iran, which is over 10 years ago now, um, unimaginable 
that something like this would happen. Um, something really interesting, there have been lots of uprisings. There's been increasing increasing incidents of protests. The protests have gotten more vocal. Some years ago, for the first time, you started hearing the chant of death to Khamenei. Khamenei is the current supreme leader. It's unimaginable. Unimaginable. Um, the other day I saw a girl, you know, standing on a car. It was almost as if she was stamping her feet. You know, she was like, Islamic Republic, I don't want it. I don't want it. You know, and that's become a chant. Nemi Kham. It's really, it's so, um, it's not even sophisticated. It's from the heart, you know, it's from the heart and soul of not just this generation, but I think they are carrying all the fury, the frustration, the indignity, the humiliation, the abuse, the violence that every generation of person, but particularly women, any kind of minority in Iran has suffered for the past 43 years. And previous protests have, they've really been ramping up since 2009 when there was that sort of green wave against this disputed election. But, you know, if you think in 2009, people's, people's, chants and demands were for a recount or for a new vote. Even in 2019, when the government, there were widespread protests, the government shut down the internet and shot 1,500 people. Um, even then, they were still demanding a review of some laws, whereas what's really different about now is people are like, this isn't about her job. This isn't about this. This is just about just enough, enough abuse. No more, no more Islamic Republic, no more Supreme Leader, no more, no negotiation, no trial. And I think that's because every movement that has come before has been trying to change things from within the system. We have been trying for so long to negotiate with these people. <laughs> to, you know, just get a little more space, to push a few boundaries. And some, you know, all the rights and and freedoms that women do have in Iran, which conversely is still more than our neighbours have in Saudi, let's say, have been, it's because of, you know, women, Iranian women and men, pushing the boundaries, pushing and, and working through the law, working through the law. But I think you probably do need a younger angry a generation to come along and go it hasn't worked it hasn't worked we can't negotiate with these people and i really feel that at the same time in the last few years particularly the kinds of the casualness of the violence that is being meted out to the iranian people in this really commonplace everyday way has has become shocking i mean shocking you know, the, 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 you've probably seen some of the videos of how, how these men mostly, but also women in the Emirates, go up and talk to people on the streets and, and how you see the way that these, these people, these security forces are hitting the women, you know, with the butt of their guns. or It's so inhuman. It's so casual. It's just so, and I think that this is the response to that. This is... I think this is human spirit that just cannot take that much abuse after a while. So, so why this? Why Massa Amini? Why right now? Um, 
I think that she has been an, an absolute trigger point for decades, decades of violence, abuse, indignity. You know, if this was just about the head job, then maybe they could be just talking about the head job. But this is talking about a country that should be one of the richest countries in the world in terms of our resources with oil and gas. But the majority, the majority of people there are living under two, on less than $200 a month, you know. The middle class has been destroyed. The wealth of the elite has gone through the roof. You know, there's nothing like the wealth that you would see in the Shah's time. The way the mullahs and their, and their you know, cronies have, have eaten the wealth of our nation, the corruption, you know, people, the hypocrisy. You know, there, the Iranian people are being, you know, hit with the butt of a gun because of the way that they choose to dress. And meanwhile, these mullahs have mansions in L.A. and their daughters and their granddaughters are models and giving parties with their tits hanging out. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but you know what I mean? I think it's this. I think it's that. It's everything. You know, so this piece of fabric and this 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 incident has become a symbol of everything that this regime represents. And that's why it's not about Islam. It's not, people are not saying we don't want to be Muslim. We don't, they're saying we don't want the Islamic Republic. We don't want them. We don't want to live like this. In fact, devout people that I know in Iran, not just now, but from time, have always said to me that they hate this Islamic Republic as much as anybody, you know, because it makes a mockery of their of their beliefs. It takes the symbols of their devotion and makes them tools and representatives for repression. So, it you know it definitely isn't. It definitely isn't. You know, I know the regime is putting out this story, um, presumably to mobilize you know the rest of the Muslim world against the Iranian people. That that it's about that, but it's not. Kamen, I, I want to ask you, um, you mentioned a couple of things there about the Obama administration and some of the foreign policy measures that have been done by the West. I know the Iranian president uh, has been uh, lambasting the West, saying that this is part of the West and Zionist uh, in terms of all the uprising and protests that have been happening in the country. Um, but I want to get from you, uh, because I was telling you this off air about this immigration attorney that I was speaking with that's Iranian, that said, remove the sanctions. Everyday Iranians are are facing this. You just mentioned under two hundred dollars a month. I don't know how anybody could survive on that. Uh, but the economic sanctions, the way they've been treated as a pariah, to use your words, what is something that the West, the U.S., other countries can do to help in this effort? I feel like, as an American myself, I hear you talk and I hear the frustration in your voice. As somebody being Iranian, I know the struggles of somebody being Cuban and seeing family members going through something similar. And when we saw the protest that happened last July in Cuba, when the government was doing something similar, not to this scale, but something similar. Um, what is something that the West can do right away, short term, long term? And then how can everyday people that are listening to this help? It's a really good question, Mike. I wish I had a I wish I had an easy answer. You know what? I, in a way, I don't know. Now, the sanctions um, are not helpful because even though I know that there's now targeted sanctions against particular individuals, and I don't know if that can help. Maybe it can. Um, but the sanctions generally 
have been used to, or what they do is that they can be circumvented, you know, by back channels, by people who have enough money and power. So mostly the sanctions have fallen on ordinary people who can't get medication for their cancer, you know, girls who can't get the birth control pill, you know, really ordinary things like this. So it, the sanctions are not helpful to the population and they just, and they don't particularly seem to hurt the regime. They just hurt the people. So I don't know that sanctions are helpful. What can the West do? I don't know, because, you know, historically, historically there is a really long uh, and, and deep and complicated history of foreign interference inside Iran's affairs also. So I, I've had also people, um, other people who know something about world affairs, who've got it slightly wrong, I think, in this instance, and who've gone, this is, you know, America must be behind this. Um, and this is what the regime is saying. They always say this. Um, I would say in this instance, it's absolutely not true. As far as I can see this and as far as I understand, this is a grassroots movement that has literally exploded from the streets. It has no leaders. Um, the fact that the Internet is down most of the time means that people are organizing in in, in ways that are not, you know, the, the ways that you would expect. So how they're doing it i'm not sure but um at least for now no one no foreign power has co-opted this um these protests um this is very much about the iranian people crying out against you know what we can do is you know what you said mike there right there is you understand a little bit because of you know your own ancestry and what happened in in cuba is is we can make human connections we can try and understand i think one of the things that people have said to me is it's in a foreign language we don't really know what's what um we don't really know what we can say how we can amplify stuff and i get it so i think i think having a little sense of um a bit of imaginative kind of um hamdali sympathy empathy is is really useful to think you know i i think this quite often as i go about my daily life here in italy i think wow you know if i was in iran i couldn't do this if i was um i know that doesn't feel like it's useful but i think it is in the sense that um i think ever happens and who knows what can possibly happen inside Iran it has to happen at the hands of the Iranian people you know if they succeed or if they get brutally crushed it cannot foreign powers cannot be involved Iranian sovereignty is something that my country has been has been you know doing revolutions for since 1906 you know and every time that we've gone some way to having sovereignty and democracy and our own power, we have had an outside power come in and crush it. You know, it was it was Great Britain and Imperial Russia before that it was Britain and America. There's lots of people who are convinced and there's some evidence to say that even the revolution of 79 was backed by foreign powers. You know, I don't know. So I don't know the answer to what the West can do other than hands off (laughs) get involved if you try and go in and give the protesters money or anything they will just get more trouble because then they will be tools of a western thing so in a way from a 
foreign policy point of view, I, this isn't very sophisticated and I need to talk to my activist friends to understand what is more useful, but I think hands off. I do think some individual pressure on people in the regime would be a good idea. I do think that it would have probably been okay for the UN on the days, the first days of the protests when so many more young girls were killed, particularly, but also young men, to have not allowed, you know, Raisi to take to the stage in New York and to give a speech telling the West off. It would have been really elegant of Macron to have refused to have his picture taken with him. I mean, I think that we feel a sense of hypocrisy and betrayal to know that this man was standing up on the stage at the UN when he was killing his own people at home. One of the hardest things being in the diaspora has been trying to tread a line between denouncing the regime and not giving the West an excuse to go to war with against my country. So that's the difficult thing. It, because until now, it feels like the Iranian population has been identified with the regime in the West. Um, it's been a really hard one to negotiate for those of us who are outside and who want to raise awareness. Um, on a personal level, I think you can probably write to your representative and say, you know, um, we need to not have business dealings with the regime of Iran. We need to not, you know, but maybe we need to think of a more intelligent way to do it than just broad sanctions that hurt the people. Um, right. And on an individual level, I know it doesn't feel like a lot, but honestly, amplifying stuff on social media and using those hashtags like hashtag Masa Amini, um, they're, they're really, really, really useful. People in Iran see them and they take courage and, and, and strength from them. And that's, in a way, all we can do is give them our support. They're the ones that have to do it. They're the ones that have to face the bullets. They're the ones that have to take back the country if that's going to happen. Right. Well, I mean, I hear it in your voice and I feel for, you know, everything that's going on there. I didn't even tell you this off air, but a friend of mine, uh, they have a family friend that was arrested in the protest as well, uh, a nephew uh, of one of my friends. So I feel for what is happening there uh, in this country. Um, you can check out Common's work at common.co.uk. Check out her website, follow her on social media, amplify the hashtags like she just mentioned. Common, I can't thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, not only sharing your personal story of how your family fled uh, Iran, but also informing us and educating us, which is the goal of this show. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Continued success to you and please stay safe. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Mike and Nick. And, and thank you to all of your listeners for giving, giving this your attention. Thank you. Nick, today's episode of the program is presented by the good folks at Airport Parking Reservations. You go to airportparkingreservations.com, a trusted site, and you can book your airport parking, save money, time, stress, guarantee your parking spot by booking in advance. I'm flying in a couple weeks myself to Chicago. We got the live show in DC we're going to. I'm going to park the car at the airports because I got the kids coming with me. 
airportparkingreservations.com makes it easy for me to be able to book all this stuff. I save up to 70% off on their site compared to the cost of airport parking. If you ever parked at an airport, Nick, if you ever parked at an airport yourself and know the cost and, and the benefits, actually there's no benefits associated with doing all that. You'd rather do it through a website. No, I would. Yeah. Most recently I, um, you know, my trip to Arkansas, I had to park at Newark Airport. Uh, I was there for at least three days. Yeah, I, I it was ex- it was expensive. It was one of the most expensive parts of the trip, actually. So this service, I'm excited about it because the ability to reserve a spot, you know, that's always tough. You're parking at the airport. You've got, you know, depending on the airport you, you're at, you're driving around through terminals, got to find a spot. So are you worried about that? And you know you're going to pay through the nose, either through your easy pass or out of your credit card. So if this service can offer and this service does answer those two big problems, you got to sign up. Well, listen, I know I have a major hub here at Miami International Airport in Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood Airport. Uh, the parking garages are a mess. You go to airportparkingreservations.com. Tried and trusted with over 6 million reservations already made. They are the best place to reserve airport parking. Click the link in our show notes right now for a special discount. Apply to checkout. Our thank yous to Common uh, Mohammadi there. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, Common Mohammadi. I got it right. Okay. Um, she was fantastic. Nick, um, before we get into our final segment here, what's happening in Iran, man, it's it's devastating. You hear it in her voice. Um, you and I are not Iranian. Um, you may have some Persian blood in you. We found out off air. We'll find out about that in another episode. But um, it, it's I can only compare it to, like I said, what happened in Cuba. There's a reason why we don't go back to Cuba, me and my wife, um, with everything that's going on there, the oppression that still exists and the communist regime is why I get mad at people here in the States that say communism and socialism and conflate terms and say these buzzwords when they don't know what it is because they've never lived in one of these countries or had family that lives or resides in these countries. They don't know what the hell this is. So they continue to use these buzzwords, buzzwords, excuse me, to to continue the fear mongering, um, but back to what is happening in Iran and this global protest and outreach. Um, it's amazing to see what is happening now. It seems it feels different from everybody you talk to and, and common mentioned that. What are some of your takeaways real quick before we get into our last segment? Yeah. You know, to anyone who the first thing that came to me is there's two U.S. parallels. Um, Masa's story right now is very reminiscent to what we saw with George Floyd. You know, for anyone who'd been paying attention, the question that was asked for all of us, you know, why this particular moment? Because we've seen we've seen black people, you know, assaulted and murdered by the police. Um, It's happened much longer than I've been on this planet. The same for you. So why this particular moment? Um, At the same time, you know, when we hear about the the police departments and, you know, their authorities going into universities, a particular one university that common talks about, um, you know, for anyone that's, you know, here that says, well, can't happen in the U S I'd exact, I'd ask all of you to read up on Kent state, you know, the shooting in 1972, where, uh, two protesters of the Vietnam war were both, uh, shot by the army essentially, or another branch of the armed forces. I apologize. But, um, I say all this because there's a very important historical comparison that we can make to what we see here. You know, that was very chilling to hear the, the word morality police. Again, the perception can be, well, that's, you know, that's a Muslim country. And, and I really appreciate the fact that Common stressed a couple of times that this is not about Islam. This is about the Islamic Republic of Iran, the, the Iran Republic. This is about the government. This is not about the faith. I think it's important to bring up for anyone who entertains that thought about this is about religion. No, these are all practicing Muslims, but this particular practice 
and the brutality behind it um, is unacceptable. But when I hear morality police, Mike, I hear about, I in my head, banning books, telling us that we can't talk about um, non-heterosexual people in school. The, there's a very chilling thing I'm hearing about that that seems to draw some parallels to the U.S. But this is not just a, this is not about the United States in this moment. This is about what's happening in Iran. For as pained as the words were from comment about the the atrocities of the regime, there's also the, the sense of hope too. You know, as right. I asked, there's something going on. I mean, right. Iranian women, women across the world, you know, are just taking off their hijabs, their hijab rather, and are saying outright, "This will not last." And as for critical as I am about young people, about voting in this in this country, what I am emboldened by is young women, you know, common had mentioned Generation Z particularly, who are not comfortable with the regime, who do not feel that this has to remain the way it is, who are standing up and saying that our time is now. Yeah. Um, and I, I applaud and salute that and just blown away by common story and what we're seeing going on. Yeah, well said. Uh, let's get into our final segment. I mentioned this about the worst boss possible to work for in a hurricane. If you don't know about this story, um, and obviously you know about the storms, we mentioned them at the beginning of Hurricane uh, Ian that that hit and ravaged parts of Florida, specifically Fort Myers, Sanibel Island, the western parts of Florida, and into central Florida as well, Osceola County and Orlando. But uh, Clearwater, Florida, which is on the west side there, a CEO there uh, was in a little bit of hot water after trying to rally her employees to stay on the job during Hurricane Ian. Uh, she downplayed it, what the Washington Post is calling a nothing burger, she said to her employees. This is Joy Gendusa, the CEO of Postcard Mania. She told her workers on Monday, remember the storm hit Tuesday uh, afternoon and night. Um, they were gathered in a conference room to watch her address them remotely because she was driving in a car. Who knows if she was getting away from the hurricane or not? Doesn't say that here in the article, but she said it's not going to be that bad. This is a direct quote. Obviously, you feeling safe and comfortable is of the utmost importance, but I honestly want to continue to deliver and I want to have a good end of the quarter. Gendusa relayed that she lived in the area for more than 30 years. And in her view, uh, the proverbial, the media always overhypes the severity of coming storms, according to newspapers now. I can get some of that. We'll get into that in a second. But Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, obviously, by the time she delivered this message on Monday afternoon to her employees, had already warned of significant risk of life-threatening storm surge, hurricane force winds, and heavy rainfall. 67 people have died so far in the hurricane-related uh, deaths toll that, that has taken place so far. Thousands were without power in the state of Florida. We saw what happened uh, to the boardwalk there in Fort Myers. It's completely destroyed businesses have been destroyed. Families have been uprooted. A bridge that connected Sanibel Island, 50 miles long. Uh, I actually, I don't know if it's 50 miles long. Um, a bridge that connected Sanibel Island destroyed. So obviously a lot of property damage, loss of life. Wasn't a nothing burger. Maybe one of the worst storms in Florida history that has hit that area. And this woman want people to, to keep grinding it out, Nick, uh, for that end of quarter financial gain. We've always talked about this human currency versus financial currency. And here's a perfect example of a CEO who ended up taking it back, by the way, just to be clear, she ended up taking back the comments uh, later on on Wednesday. She apologized to workers who felt that it came across as insensitive, according to an internal email uh, from Postcard Mania's director of marketing and communications. This was all reported by the Tampa Bay Times. You can check out that story over on their website. Nick, um, you sent me this article 
you were like, this, this needs to have some attention because of, especially what ended up happening with the storm. You know, I mean, we, I just mentioned the 67 reported deaths. It hit parts of, uh, you know, Northwest and, and uh, central Florida. And then obviously went back and made a hard right into the ocean, went back uh, to the Carolinas. Few people died uh, in, in the storm that when it hit made uh, landfall there in the Carolinas. So this was not a nothing burger for her to classify like that and, and keep people on the clock on a Monday afternoon when they could have been fleeing, getting, you know, getting the safety and shelter. What do you make of, of this story and, and this human currency versus monetary gain uh, angle? Yeah. You know, I have a couple of things came to mind as I was reading this, you know, first, you know, everyone's holed up in the office as she's traveling. Um, this is a marketing firm. Like we can't do this remotely. Like we're not building anything here. <laughs> you're not you know, producing physical things. Like this is marketing. This is the ability to create and disseminate ideas. Um, so it looks silly that the CEO who's in a car, we don't know if she's leaving, you know, for safety reasons or whatever, is just telling her employees back at the office, hey, you all stay there, but I I gotta be somewhere else. You know, um, I mean, there's volumes of texts here, most of which are on my bookshelf. You know, leaders are the one who are with the team. Like, if this is important enough for you that they stay in the office, which I think is a silly thing at this point anyway, then where the hell are you? Nothing burger. So she's a meteorologist now. I mean, we're 10 years removed from Sandy. And, you know, one thing that always stood out to me there was the fact that, you know, the meteorologist got this right. And we've had, you know, a meteorologist on the show. You know, the science continues to tell us, science in this case of like how reliable weather reports are. We're well past the days of, oh, you know, the weather people, they'll just make things a big deal. No, this shit is real. If someone tells you a storm's coming, prepare. If the severity doesn't hit as bad as you think it would, that's a good thing. But to say a nothing burger, yeah, who the hell are you? And then, you know, I want to have a good end of quarter. Like, what is she, Derek Carr? Like, how about a better start of quarter? How about a better mid-quarter? We're going to do a rally for the end of the quarter with a damn storm running through? And it's and again, profits over people, folks. Stop it. It's 2022. You know, people are looking for reasons to quit on you because there are better organizations out there. And any competitive firm to what this company is doing is about to get flooded via Indeed for this kind of nonsense. Uh, you know, and lastly, one of the things that came up is as the office was closing, you know, after she pulled back her words, they changed policies. You know, they were telling employees, you know, you know we're going to close the offices down, but you got to make up those 40 hours. You got to make up the time. Did we resurrect Ebenezer Scrooge? Like, do we also have to start shoving coals in there to make sure things stay warm you know, during, during the colder months? Who the hell does that? Be thankful your office didn't get blown away like the various houses in Fort Myers. You know, we have folks right now who don't even have insurance because the state of Florida can barely keep insurance companies. People's homes are gone. And this moron is sitting here, you know, good end of quarter, stay in there while I'm not here. Horrible leadership. Horrible. I, I, I focus on leadership for a living and what an ass clown. There's no yeah. other way around it. If, if you are an employee of this company, you should be looking for another job. Well, I mean, I don't know if I agree with any of that because I don't know what the company's like, but I will tell you this. Um, I, I got an email from our head of HR at the company I work for asking me if I was okay and if I needed anything support-wise. 
I mean, just as a contrast, right? Not <laughs> again, this was day of the storm, I think Tuesday. That's awesome. Potentially. So uh, I want to shout out uh, to them. Obviously, I know they listen to this program, but so, yeah. So just a, a huge contrast, right? Like, do you need help getting out? What's wrong? Not, hey, by the way, you know, September 30th is Friday and it's the end of the quarter, you know, like, which, by the way, it's the end of the quarter for all of us. Um, you can wait for the profit another day. We leave it there, Nick. Uh, our thank yous again to Cayman for coming on the program. More on the Iran uh, situation that's unfolding and happening in that company. We're going to be doing more with a human rights uh, lawyer as well that's going to be coming on the program in the coming weeks uh, for this episode, for all our episodes, video. You want to check out all of the interviews that we've done on this program. Head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. Email us, by the way, Can We Please Talk Podcast at gmail.com if you have feedback of the interviews that we've done, the episodes that we've done. You know, we answer questions, we read the feedback here on air audio podcast platforms you know them by now apple spotify google please leave us a five-star review and comment pretty pretty please okay two two pretties in there for you uh we shout out to acast our hosting platform we cannot do it without them can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program right in good bad or indifferent we can't thank you enough as always i am mike leon and thank you for visiting the terror dome i'm nick severi <laughs> i don't even know what that means i'm clipping that out folks we'll see you next it's time a public enemy reference come on man <laughs> <laughs>